Exceptional Asians There's one notable exception to the trend toward narcissism observed in psychological studies of young Americans. It doesn't appear among young Asian Americans, probably because their parents have been influenced less by the self-esteem movement than by a cultural tradition of instilling discipline. Some Asian cultures put considerably more emphasis on promoting self-control and from earlier ages than is common in America and other Western societies. Chinese parents and preschools pressure children quite early in life to become toilet-trained and acquire other basic forms of impulse control. By one estimate, two-year-old Chinese children are expected to have levels of control that correspond roughly to what American children reach at age three or four. A clear difference between Chinese and American toddlers emerges when they're asked to override their natural impulses. In one test, for instance, the toddlers are shown a series of pictures and instructed to say day whenever they see the moon and night whenever they see the sun. In other tests, the toddlers try to restrain themselves to a whisper when they're excited and play a version of Simon Says in which they're supposed to obey one kind of command but ignore another kind. The Chinese four-year-olds generally perform better on these tests than Americans of the same age. The Chinese toddler's superior self-control might be due in part to genes. There's evidence that the genetic factors associated with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, are much rarer in Chinese children than in American children. But the cultural traditions in China and other Asian countries undoubtedly play an important role in instilling self-discipline and those traditions in Asian-American homes have contributed to the children's low levels of narcissism as well as their later successes. Asian-Americans make up only 4% of the U.S. population, but account for a quarter of the student body at elite universities like Stanford, Columbia, and Cornell. They're more likely to get a college degree than any other ethnic group, and they go on to earn salaries that are 25% above the American norm. Their success has led to the popular notion that Asians are more intelligent than Americans and Europeans. But that's not how James Flynn explains their achievements. After carefully reviewing IQ studies, Flynn concludes that the scores of Chinese-American and Japanese-American people are very similar to whites of European descent. If anything, the Asian-American's IQ is slightly lower on average, although they do show up more at both the upper and lower extremes. The big difference is that they make better use of their intelligence. People working in what Flynn calls elite professions, like physicians, scientists, and accountants, generally have an IQ above a certain threshold. For white Americans, that threshold is an IQ of 110. But Chinese Americans manage to get the same elite jobs with an IQ of only 103. Moreover, among the people above each threshold, Chinese Americans have higher rates of actually getting into those jobs, meaning that a Chinese American with an IQ above 103 is more likely to get an elite job than an American with an IQ above 110. The pattern is similar for Japanese Americans. By virtue of self-control, hard work, diligence, steadiness, reliability, the children of immigrants from East Asia can do as well as Americans with higher IQs. Delayed gratification has been a familiar theme in the homes of immigrants like Jay and Dae Kim, who were born in South Korea 
and raised two daughters in North Carolina. The sisters, Sue and Jane, became a surgeon and a lawyer, respectively, as well as the co-authors of Top of the Class, a book about Asian parents' techniques for fostering achievement. They tell how their parents started teaching them the alphabet before their second birthday, and how their mother was never one to reward a child whining for candy at the supermarket. When they reached the checkout counter, before the girls had a chance to beg, Mrs. Kim would preempt them by announcing that if they had each read a book the following week, she would buy them a candy bar on the next shopping trip. Later, when Sue went off to college and asked her parents for a cheap used car to get around, they refused but offered to buy her a brand new car if she was admitted to medical school. Thus, these parents did provide good things for their daughters, but each treat was meted out as a reward for some valued achievement. The many Asian American success stories have forced developmental psychologists to revise their theories about proper parenting. They used to warn against the authoritarian style in which parents set rigid goals and enforce strict rules without much overt concern for the child's feelings. Parents were advised to adopt a different style called authoritative, in which they still set limits but gave more autonomy and paid more attention to the child's desires. This warmer, more nurturing style was supposed to produce well-adjusted, self-confident children who would do better academically and socially than those from authoritarian homes. But then, as Ruth Chow and other psychologists studied Asian American families, they noticed that many of the parents set quite strict rules and goals. These immigrants, and often their children too, considered their style of parenting to be a form of devotion, not oppression. Chinese-American parents were determined to instill self-control by following the Confucian concepts of Shun, which means to train, and Guan, which means both to govern and to love. These parents might have seemed cold and rigid by American standards, but their children were flourishing both in and out of school. The contrast with American notions showed up in a study of women in the Los Angeles area who were the mothers of toddlers. When asked how parents could contribute to children's academic success, the mothers who had emigrated from China most frequently mentioned setting high goals, enforcing tough standards, and requiring children to do extra homework. Meanwhile, the native-born mothers of European ancestry were determined not to put too much pressure on children. They most frequently mentioned the importance of not overemphasizing academic success, of stressing the child's social development, and of promoting the idea that learning is fun and not something you work at. Another of their chief concerns was promoting the child's self-esteem, a concept of just about no interest to the Chinese mothers in the study, or to Amy Chua, who has become the most outspoken and entertaining advocate of what she calls Chinese parenting in her best-selling book, The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Chua's version of parenting no sleepovers, no playdates, is too extreme for our tastes, particularly the three-hour violin lessons. But we admire her insights into the problems with the self-esteem movement. As I watched American parents slathering praise on their kids for the lowest of tasks, drawing a squiggle or waving a stick, I came to see that Chinese parents have two things over their Western counterparts. One, higher dreams for their children. And two, higher regard for their children in the sense of knowing how much they can take. Chua's basic strategies, 
set clear goals, enforce rules, punish failure, reward excellence, aren't all that different from the ones being imparted to American homes on Nanny 911 by Deborah Carroll, the member of the team of world-class nannies who gets assigned to the truly hard cases, like the Paul family portrayed in that Little House of Horrors episode. In her dealings with American children, Carol says she's simply applying the lessons of her own youth in Wales. When I was in school, Carol recalls, it was such a big thing to get the gold or silver star. It was so important to have a sense that I worked really hard to achieve something. When I ironed my grandfather's shirts, he insisted on paying me because I did it so well. He told me I did it better than my grandmother, and I loved that feeling of accomplishment. That's where your self-esteem comes from, not from being told you're the greatest. Like Amy Chua and the Kims in North Carolina and so many other Asian immigrants, Nanny Deb independently arrived at the same educational conclusions as the Association for Psychological Sciences review panel. Forget about self-esteem. Work on self-control. Nanny Deb and the Triplets When Carol arrived at the Paul's home near St. Louis, she wasn't particularly worried about the hellions she'd seen on video climbing the walls, spitting on the floor, and swinging from light fixtures. She knew that four-year-olds could be a handful, especially when there were three of them running wild. But she had had enough experience with other American houses of horror to realize that there were bigger problems to deal with. In homes like this, the children are very, very easy, Carol says. They're looking for structure. They're looking to feel safe, for someone who can tell them, I'm in charge, things are going to be fine. It's much harder to get the parents to stay on track. They have to learn how to get control of themselves to control the children. Carol had been dealing with parents like this since becoming a full-time nanny at the age of 18. One of her first jobs in London was with an American mother, married to a Briton, who would watch helplessly as her child went berserk. The toddler would be literally spinning on the coffee table in a tantrum, Carol recalls, and the mother would just say to her, you're in a really bad space, honey. There's nothing wrong with a toddler having a tantrum. It's natural. It's our job to teach them other ways to deal with it. The Pauls weren't as mellow as that mother, but they seemed just as helpless when it came to discipline. When the father, Tim, came home from the office to find a living room covered in toys, he'd take a hockey stick and sweep them all into the closet. The mother, Cindy, a former flight attendant accustomed to badly behaved adults, was overwhelmed by the triplets and had given up trying to get them to clean up their toys or get dressed. When Nanny Deb told them to put on their own socks, hardly an impossible feat for toddlers approaching kindergarten, one of them, Lauren, refused and ran into the kitchen to bring the socks to her mother. Sobbing hysterically, she begged over and over for help while desperately clutching her mother. This is very heartbreaking, Mrs. Paul said. She'll do this for half an hour. It will be very frustrating here for a while. When she has her meltdown, she just asks the same question over and over. That's when I just zone out and I can no longer focus and I'm ready to just scream at everybody and just send them straight to bed. This time, as usual, the child won. Mrs. Paul put on the socks for her, much to the exasperation of Carol. For four and a half years, she's gotten upset and you've let her get away with it, Carol said to Mrs. Paul. 
What's going to happen to her in second grade when she's not doing her math because she doesn't want to? Watching scenes like this, it's hard to believe that parents traditionally considered it their duty to beat their children. Spare the rod, spoil the child, really was standard advice. And spoiling the child was considered to be the essence of failed parenting. The Puritan Cotton Mather put it even more starkly, better whipped than damned. We're not advocating a return to spanking, much less whipping, but we do think parents need to rediscover their roles as disciplinarians. That doesn't mean being abusive or getting angry or imposing draconian penalties. But it does mean taking the time to watch your child's behavior and impose appropriate rewards or punishments. Whether you're giving a timeout to a toddler or revoking a teenager's driving privileges, there are three basic facets of punishment. Severity, speed, and consistency. Many people associate strict discipline with severe penalties, but that's actually the least important facet. Researchers have found that severity seems to matter remarkably little and can even be counterproductive. Instead of encouraging virtue, harsh punishments teach the child that life is cruel and that aggression is appropriate. The speed of the punishment is much more important, as researchers have found in working with children as well as with animals. For lab rats to learn from their mistakes, the punishment generally has to occur almost immediately, preferably within a second of the misbehavior. Punishment doesn't have to be that quick with children, but the longer the delay, the more chance that they'll have forgotten the infraction and the mental processes that led to it. By far the most important facet of punishment, and most difficult one for parents, is consistency. Ideally, a parent should quickly discipline the child every single time he or she misbehaves, but in a restrained, even mild manner. A stern word or two is often enough as long as it's done carefully and regularly. This approach can initially be more of a strain on the parents than on the child. They're tempted to overlook or forgive some misdeed, if only because they're tired or because it may spoil the pleasant time everyone else is having. Parents may rationalize that they want to be kind. They may even tell each other to be nice and let this one go. But the more vigilant they are early on, the less effort is required in the long run. Consistent discipline tends to produce well-behaved children. While parents like Cindy Paul find it heartbreaking to start imposing discipline, children react well when reprimands are delivered briefly, calmly, and consistently, according to Susan O'Leary, the psychologist who has spent long hours observing toddlers and parents. When parents are inconsistent, when they let an infraction slide, they sometimes try to compensate with an extra strict punishment for the next one. This requires less self-control on the parent's part. They can be nice when they feel like it, and they can punish severely if they're feeling angry or the misbehavior is egregious. But imagine how this looks from the child's point of view. Some days you make a smart remark and the grown-ups all laugh. Other days, a similar remark brings a smack or the loss of treasured privileges. Seemingly tiny or even random differences in your own behavior or in the situation seem to spell the difference between no punishment at all and a highly upsetting one. Besides resenting the unfairness, you learn that the most important thing is not how you behave, but whether or not you get caught, and whether your parents are in the mood to punish. You might learn, for instance, that table manners can be dispensed with at restaurants, because the grown-ups are too embarrassed to discipline you in public. 
Parents find it hard to administer discipline in public because they feel judged, Carol says. They're afraid people will think they're a bad mother. But you have to get that out of your head. I've had people stare at me when I take a child out of a restaurant for being rude. But you can't worry about that. You have to do what's right for the child. And it really is all about being consistent. They have to grow up knowing what's appropriate and inappropriate behavior. When Carol applied her consistent brand of discipline in the Paul household, the results seemed miraculous. By the end of her week-long stay, the triplets were making their beds and picking up their toys. Lauren was proudly putting on her socks. The parents looked calm and happy. At least that was how it was edited to appear in the program, in keeping with the usual arc of chaos to bliss. But could this discipline really make a lasting difference once Nanny Deb and the cameras departed? We checked up on the Pauls in 2010, which was six years after Carol's visit, and Mrs. Paul declared the experiment a long-term success. We don't have any real big issues anymore, she said, explaining that the four-year-old Hellions of television fame had grown up into ten-year-olds who were flourishing academically and serving on the school's leadership council. At home, they were still doing their chores. Until Nanny Deb came, I never thought they could do those chores themselves, Mrs. Paul told us. I thought it was too much to ask them, but they just didn't have the guidance or structure to know what they were supposed to do. It's easy for a parent to say, go and clean up your room, but that doesn't tell the child anything. You may as well tell them to stare at the wall. You need the discipline to go in there with them and model exactly what to do. Show them how to fold a piece of clothing and put it in the closet or the right drawer. Once Mrs. Paul did that a few times, the children took to doing it on their own, although it still occasionally required some parental supervision and the resolve not to backslide and do the jobs for the children. Sometimes, Mrs. Paul said, I come into the kitchen and the cereal bowls are still sitting there, and I find myself wanting to grab the bowls and clean up. It's easier for me to do that than go find them. But no matter where they are, I have to remember to ask them to come back and clear their own plates. That's where I have to exercise self-control. Which brings us back to the familiar question for parents. How do you acquire and maintain self-control? How do you calmly, consistently discipline the children when, as Mrs. Paul realized, it's so often easier to let things slide? The answer, as ever, starts with setting goals and standards.